Hi, you're with Julian on the Brown Note Gone But Forgotten, where I review either mainly an album, and in this case it was going to be New Gold Dream, but I've just got carried away and want to tell the whole story, or a band whose classic status was never acknowledged on release or has been forgotten from the conversation. And I'm going to choose Simple Minds, and the band Simple Minds have been forgotten about. But also the common view of the band of Simple Minds is so wrong. The, the normal view of Simple Minds is that they were U2 in the 1980s, synonymous with the whole idea of stadium rock, bombast, do-gooding and um, Live Aid era. Both bands played in Live Aid and, you know, conscientious rock stars playing to 80,000 people, bombast, lack of subtlety. This is so not the Simple Mind story. Between 1979 and 1982, so a four-year period, Simple Minds had the greatest run, the most forward-thinking run of six albums that would rival bands like Can or The Beatles. For a four-year period of forward-thinking, brilliant albums. And they don't get any credit for it now. Every now and again, one of these albums pops up and then people say, you know, oh, this is an art house triumph. But really, people talk about Don't You Forget About Me. And that's it. So I'm going to run through what was so unbelievable about this four-year run of just jaw-dropping music. They formed in 77 in um, Glasgow and Jim Kerr, the vocalist, and they're still going, not with exactly the same members, but with um, Charlie Birchall, one of the most underrated guitarists of all time. And that is a, this, a commonality. Their drummer was amazing. So I think it was Brian McGee back then. Uh, their keyboard player, Mick McNeil, was amazing. But their bass player, Derek Forbes, is only for me in all of alternative British music rivaled by Peter Hook from Joy Division and New Order. He is better, I think. He led more great songs in that six-album run than I can think of any bass player actually being the lead instrument in. And Charlie Birchill, the guitarist, was very much a proto-Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead in that Derek Forbes set the foundations as a lead player in the way that Peter Hook would, with probably 30 or 40 absolutely knockout of the park bass parts. And Birchill would um, play over the top of this in a much more textural future post-rock way. Um, that got lost in translation by the time of Don't You Forget About Me. Their first album, Life in a Day, came out in 1979 and was mocked, and it set them on a path of being almost entirely ignored for years until they actually broke the gates down themselves. Yet along the way, their best music is completely ignored. Life in a Day wasn't a great album, but I think it's a good album, and the analogy I would use is that compared to what's coming, Life in a Day feels like a teenager trying on their parents' clothes. I'm going to dress up as a punk. I'm going to dress up as Roxy Music. I'm going to dress up as a Velvet Underground. And it was a bit cheesy, but I've always gone back to it because it's actually a lot of fun. 
and tracks like life in the day with its bays of sense and um chelsea girl is just amazing um and i actually like some of the long form epics and um, pleasantly disturbed i thought was really really good it's a fun album to listen to when i first heard it this came out in 1979 but when i first heard it i didn't know who the velvet underground were i didn't know i knew who um the doors were i knew who Jimi hendrix was i didn't know who roxy music were i didn't know david bowie's low so all of this was like they invented all of that music but it wasn't true that they did but i'm going to give it a seven out of ten um i've always enjoyed going back to it over the time over time that's really it stood the test of time for being a, a fun energetic record yet within just over like six seven months they went through something like robert johnson at the crossroads they came back still in 1979 with real to real cacophony one of the twin pillars of that early era of um, simple minds there are two albums the follow-up which i'm going to get into and this one that are sort of held up today as art house masterpieces the album had no bearing at all on the predecessor life in the day it was an entirely different act yes it had some things that were analogous to david bowie's low or to roxy music or to brian eno or to the experimental music from kraut rock but this was their voice instead of being a teenager dressing up in their clothes they were a fully formed band out of nowhere how did they do that how did they go from a sometimes trite variation on what was common punk music around 1979 and emerge with this alien soundtrack of homogenous yet completely bafflingly odd it's not a commercial album it's not even an easy album to listen to and you can hear within seconds of it starting and it does have a sort of bowie low vibe on that title track that opens the album but it sounds so alien and unknowable and jim kerr starts to develop this very sort of either expressionistic or impressionistic lyrical style um which wasn't like anyone else and their peers were you too and over this period of those first few years they so far outstripped what art artistically you too did um the, the music here is bafflingly odd even stuff like citizen dance of youth carnival shelter in a suitcase it, it goes off into like tangents of madness like the band madness it is a wild ride completely not concerned with whether the listener is going to be on board pushing everything to the absolute artistic limit and we get this track called velt which is based on i think a raymond bradbury story which serves as the palate cleanser after six tracks of wild artistic abandon we get this track about um i think it was about two kids sitting in a lounge room where their tvs are on each wall showing the african savannah and that ends up eating their parents and i think it was from uh, i think a raymond bradbury story i'm not sure and after that it's like all of the ideas that made up the disparate nature of the first half of the album snap into focus and the band snaps into focus for the first time with the back-to-back -back killer blows of premonition and changeling which opens side two and these two are absolutely colossal tracks 
Premonition is the first time that Derek Forbes' bass leads a track that is of note with a sublime bass line. And it has, it's the closest to hard rock they got. It's an amazing track and immediately followed by Changeling, which is a very Gary Newman-esque track. Um, at the time, Gary Newman himself was coming through. We're still in 1979. Both those, that one too, really did, was the first time they announced themselves as something completely special. But it's an art rock album. It is a masterpiece. Um, and, you know, some of the tracks following that, Calling Your Name is amazing, and Scar is another beautiful, mainly instrumental track uh, that pans it out. It is still a difficult album, but I'm going to give Real to Real a 9 out of 10 and um, that was followed very quickly by Empires and Dance the um, James Bradfield lead singer of the Manic Street Preachers favorite album and every now and some journalists were picking these albums out and saying this is one of the best albums of the year no one really cared they didn't get a whisker near the charts they were ignored but why were they making this music in Glasgow why were these post-punks who started off feeling like you two, turning even more Joy Division than Joy Division were. Um, Empires and Dance is another masterpiece, and um, they seem to be trying to make some massive propulsive track on each of these albums, and we got Premonition and Changeling on, on the last two. This time in the album moments with I Travel, please look it up. In fact, I did a radio show a few years back, uh, Mixed Cloud, Julian Brown or the Brown Note, Simple Mind Special, going through all of this but playing all of this music, I Travel still sounds like the future. It's incredibly propulsive and frenetic and absolutely stunning. Um, the ethos of the band at the time was being shaped by a Europe that was still under a lot of communist fascism, as in that there were totalitarian dictatorships still in the thrall of the Soviet Union that were you know, if you lived in Romania or somewhere, you were living in a totalitarian dictatorship. And they tour Europe and see all of this. And Jim Kerr was um, putting it down on paper and he never gets any credit for the lyrics over the years. Europe has a language problem in Central Europe. Men are marching. It sounds, it sounds today. And they're also a big part of the fermentation of death disco. And whether that's a real genre or not, but it seems to come out around the start of the 2000s, end of the 90s, with the sort of people like the Rapture. So it was, it was um, very black disco music with a lot of guitars, post-punk guitars, dance punk in some ways. Um, but certainly I Travel and Changeling and Premonition were a fermentation of that. Um, and I, I, you know, anyone that listens to the propulsive I Travel it's amazing. Um, Today I Died Again, Celebrate This Fear of God. So it's a brilliant opening. Derek Forbes is really coming to his fore. They'll in hell be a lot of these songs, even like This Fear of God's, when the, when the tracks get longer. Um, he's Sometimes he can do like really, really frenetic bass playing, but other times he does these really long, loping bass runs, which are a lot more subtle, but um, very sort of muscular and they build the frame of the song around them. Constantinople, capital city. There's a lot of looking out at Europe for this Glaswegian band. They were the most European looking of the UK acts. Much more analogous to people like Brian Eno, who was looking to Cologne and the Kraut Rock legends in um, 
Dusseldorf or Frankfurt, they were also simple minds touring Europe and taking in this other world, often not a particularly great one either. Um, it's an amazing album. Um, it just shades real to real cacophony and is a nine and a half out of ten. Um, the most underrated of this period is an album I'm going to treat as one, which is Sons and Fascination slash Sister Feelings Call. It's often regarded as a runt of the litter next to Real to Real and Empires and Dance. And I can see why, but part of that is I treat Sons and Fascination as an album with a satellite EP. Um, there are albums like Scream Delica that came out by Primal Scream that had a satellite EP like the Dixie Narco EP which had the 10 minute Scream Delica title track on the EP that's kind of how I view this when they released it they released them both on the same day as part of the same package that's how I treat them to this day Sons and Fascination as a full album with a satellite EP of a few extra sometimes long form tracks that actually expand on the themes of the album. It is the most underrated thing they've done. Um, and the album's got split, and I think that watered it down, because you could end up buying Sister Feelings Cool and thinking it wasn't that great, but I don't treat that so much as an album on its own. If you look through the track listing of um, Sons and Fascination, it opens with just an amazing run, and the bass playing by Derek Forbes across this album is I think as good as any alt-rock bass playing in history. He helms nearly every track here. So we get some long-form tracks like Entrance as Mission and some of this music would get picked up by the Balearic House movement at the end of the decade. It's still incredible to think that they've moved so far from 1979 to 1981. It's just incredible. Uh, Sweat and Bullet, uh, Boys from Reveal, 70 Cities as Love Brings a Fall are three propulsive tracks in that mode of them trying to do propulsion. And some of that um, Sweat and Bullet is the closest they would come to the sort of bass heavy um, Duran Duran style of, of that era. Um, very, very sort of 80 sound um, in, the, in the bass playing department like you get on the Spandau Ballet, good song or a Duran Duran song from the era. Um, but it was Love Song which opened side two, which was their best version of that sort of premonition style track. And it's just fantastic, hear it, it's amazing. Love Song, Simple Minds, it still sounds phenomenal. Ironically, it was written as a joke when their record label was saying, you know, you, you sell 10 records every album. <laughs> but like you too, they were phenomenal live and building up a reputation of constantly touring which is what happened to America to you two in America they built it up over touring over time and Simple Minds was starting to reap the rewards Love Song was actually uh, a, a small hit record and seeing out the angel which ends the album is um, these beautiful pulsing synth bays um, which are very much pointing towards what would be their flat out masterpiece coming um, New Gold Dream uh, and you can hear that on Seeing Out the Angel but then you get the Sister Feelings call tracks and the, the one two that opens that album Theme for Great Cities started appearing on trance soundtracks 
um, for you know when you used to get DJ mixtapes. Ten years later, this was very forward-thinking music. This is a, an instrumental. It's got like uh, they were really ahead of the curve on these driving arpeggiated synth lines, um, and you know you can isolate bits of it and you could put them in synth music to this day. Uh, and that's a phenomenal track, as, as is the American, which is, has got like a minute of um, Birchill's wah-wah, wiki-wah-wah guitar, which is just phenomenal. So I, I don't think that um, I treat that as an album more than uh, I treat it as an exploration of the ideas. Here's a side album that's short, and it's it serves as a coda to the album. So I'm going to review it once and give it a 9 out of 10 and then they went on in 1982 to cap this impossible run of art house triumph rock uh, which was new gold dream which is i think one of the greatest albums of all time arguably the most luxurious synth pop album of all time it didn't sound like quite like any synth pop music ever and it didn't quite sound like anything they'd made it was one of these things where everything aligned at this point, they were starting to lose uh, their drummer, and half the tracks have their old drummer, half the tracks have Mel Gaynor, an African-American, brought into the fold, who was a giant man, and completely at odds with these kind of, you know, a little bit more pasty uh, Scottish people. And uh, there was sort of like this idea at the time that he made the band into something, but they were already something. And the, um, the previous drummer plays on the album just as much as he does. It is a flat-out masterpiece. You can hear from the opening track somewhere, someone somewhere in summertime. Charlie Birchill's guitar playing here is mirroring synth lines. And it sounds so beautiful. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the alienated air of um, OK Computer, particularly something like No Alarms and No Surprises. It's very, very pretty, and it's very sort of lost feeling. Um, every track on here is in its right place. There are the, there are the more sort of possible pop single relation tracks like Somewhere, Someone in Summertime, and Promised You a Miracle, which is, um, it, if you isolate each individual element, none of it makes sense. It doesn't seem possible to put together. It's like there are loads of 10 second bits that, that are all in part of a machine and they all were an interlock. It's a phenomenal piece of music. And the sound stage here is absolutely magnificent. Uh, Peter Walsh was a producer. I think he did most of their albums by this stage. It's a phenomenal track and it got into the got them on top of the pops at the time. Um, and Glittering Prize was the other main single on the album, which um, has got a phenomenal bass line. It's an unforgettable bass line. It's, it's probably the least of the least interesting track on the album. But the heart of the album, I think, is the long-form track. So we get a couple of um, instrumentals, uh, like Colors Fly and Catherine Wheel and Somebody Up There Likes Me, which are pure instrumental moods. Um, the production here is... I remember... Um, going to Glasgow, because I used to live in Edinburgh, going to the Lynn Hi-Fi store. These were the people that made very high-end stereos, amplifiers, speakers, and they used to test their stuff on um, the Blue Niles albums from that same era because of how well they were produced. This, I bet, was something they tried out on because the soundstage of the drums, the synth, 
the guitar lines and the vocals is so beautifully put together. The, the drumming and the um, bass lines here are so interlocked uh, and it sounds so full and so rich that there was, I think there was a bit of um, a joke in the English music press about sonic cathedrals of sound, which came from this album. People calling it a sonic cathedral of sound because it's sounding quite churchy. Um, and the lyrics by this stage were so abstract. Um, and it was just an unbelievable album. It's heart of the longer form tracks, The Big Sleep, which has got this um, wailing guitar going through the end. And um, Hunter and the Hunted and Kings White is in the crowd. Hunter and the Hunted might even be the best thing on the album. It's a brilliant track, but then after four minutes, they get this astonishing keyboard solo from Herbie Hancock. How the hell was Herbie Hancock there to do a, key a keyboard solo? It's phenomenal. And the title track, New Gold Dream, 81, 82, 83, 84, really nails, um, like Derek Phillips has got this furious bass line going, and it's got these huge colossal drums, but all the arpeggiated synth lines that, that are really frenetic. It's so huge and colossal. Um, it is, for me, one of the greatest albums of all time. I think it's amazing. And that is the end of that run. So New Gold Dream is a flat 10 out of 10 masterpiece. And that's what I was going to do this piece on. A flat 10 out of 10 masterpiece for New Gold Dream. But I needed to tell the whole story. And for many people, the start of Simple Minds' massive popularity was the end of their greatness. And they always say Sparkly in the Rain was um, the last great album. I don't think this is true. I think a slightly different version of the story, which is Sparkle in the Rain, which came out in 1984 and featured Waterfront, which was their biggest hit and a colossal track. If you ever want to know why Derek Forbes, who was virtually leaving the band by this point, was so good a bass player, the one note bass line that carries Waterfront is one for the ages. It's amazing and colossal and bombastic in a way that they'd never been previously. For me, Sparkly in the Rain is a horrible album, <laughs> and none of their fans will agree with me, but it's a complete mess. It opens with um, a brilliant track up on the catwalk, but a lot of the other tracks, like Speed Your Love to Me, are so, it, it's a very muddy, messy production. I don't like the production on this at all, um, and it's Steve Lillywhite, who is, is he's kind of famed as a producer of those big, sort of American rock-sounding records, and he does Jim Kerr loses that abstract lyricism for boy girl love songs that are just so bland um I thought that um Waterfront and Street Hassle you know there's a run through the middle that's quite good but a lot of it is just a, is is really messy and doesn't fit together so I'm gonna give Sparkling the Rain a four out of ten I thought it was a terrible album I've never really liked it and the idea is that their next album, Once Upon a Time, was their big commercial breakthrough. But it was, um, you know, nowhere near what they were like before. But I totally disagree. For me, it's their last truly great album. And the thing that happened between Sparkling Rain and Once Upon a Time in 1985 was the track Don't You Forget About Me, uh, written by the director of the, or someone who wrote the Breakfast Club movie, becoming a US number one. 
and elevating to, to the status of being on Live Aid and playing stadiums. And Once Upon a Time was the big album. But for me, it's a sequel to New Gold Dream. Gone is a mess of Sparkle in the Rain. Instead, all of the colour palette here is, is analogous to the rest of the album. It's all seemingly made from the same colour palette, the same uh, instrumentation that is varied, but it, it's, part, it's not like completely throwing everything out with each track and starting again. And the run of tracks on it is phenomenal. Um, all the things she said, Ghost Dancing, Alive and Kicking, um, Sanctify Yourself, all of the tracks from probably two till seven are absolutely fantastic. Charlie Birchall becomes like the edge here uh, with much bigger chords, much bigger sort of riffs, and it's huge. But they also introduce, uh, have I got my personnel here? Robin Clark who I think was African-American as a singer who sang on the album Young Americans, as did, uh, I can't remember his name now, another very famous uh, soul singer. The addition of her as a vocalist, I think is something that's been copied by other white British rock bands and even American ones. She's not a backing singer as much as a co-lead vocalist alongside um, Jim Kerr here. The Happy Mondays did it with Rowetta. Um, the Promise Scream have done it. And the Afghan Whigs did it on like an album like 1965 where you've got this very powerful, soulful, black female voice alongside this less powerful white voice and it completely lifts everything. I think Once Upon a Time's a great album. And tracks like Alive and Kicking and Sanctify Yourself are just phenomenal. They're, I mean, you can say what you like about them being bombastic or not art house anymore i still think it's a solid nine out of ten as an album and i'm going to end things with um street fighting years after once upon a time the band disappeared for four years um touring releasing double live albums but one thing they did and they don't get any credit for and it gets hoovered up in the notion of sanctimonious bonos telling you what to do is the mandela day concerts you two never had their own you two were at Live Aid. Simple Minds had the Mandela Day concerts. This was late 80s, the UK, Margaret Thatcher in power, who had said that Nelson Mandela was a terrorist and was big friends with Pinochet from Chile and big friends with the South African apartheid regime. Simple Minds helmed a concert called the Mandela Day concert and the track Mandela Day nearly topped the UK charts. A beautiful track, actually. And they helmed this concert that had, you know, everyone every time that i think you always got variants of um, eric clapton and, and dire straits at these things um but it was a magical day and it was all about nelson mandela why they deserve credit is the fact that they played this same concert as the lead act probably a couple of years later to the same ninety thousand people at wembley stadium with nelson mandela in the audience because apartheid was in, had ended. Did Simple Minds end apartheid? No. The cultural boycott was probably one of the key elements in ending apartheid, and the Simple Minds-led Mandela Day concert was one of the most prominent global events attached to it. Enough so that Nelson Mandela himself made a point of being in that crowd. Um, 
So I think they deserve a lot of credit for that, uh, which they don't get. And Street Fighting Years for, was a huge hit in the UK, less so in America, where they'd kind of gone off the boil. Um, and the the main track, Belfast Child, was like a, nearly a number one as well. They covered Biko. It's not a good album. Um, I think the first half of it is is just so wayward and so tepid. I actually kind of like the much softer second half of the album, uh, where Mel- Mandela Day and Belfast Child and Biko come in, where it's a lot more gentle. Uh, and I think that's best embodied by the track Mandela Day as well. Um, so it's, it's it's an F album for me. It's got some big moments, but overall as an album, it just doesn't pan out. And I tried Real Life that came out after, but for me, the period had ended. But I just wanted to go through that golden period of that first run of five or six, dependent on how you're looking at it, albums, uh, particularly the masterpieces of Real to Real Cacophony, Empires and Dance, Sons and Fascination, and the flat out 10 out of 10 New Gold Dream. <laughs>